The statements and views expressed on the Voices in Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices in Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. In honor of Women's History Month, we are focusing on contributions and highlights of the Feminism and Legal Theory Project. I am your host, Mangala Kinesen. Today, I am grateful to have Professor Jack Jackson here on the show as my guest. Jack Jackson is an Associate Professor of Politics at Whitman College. He received his PhD in Political Theory from UC Berkeley and his JD from Cornell. Jack Jackson is a co-editor of Feminist and Queer Legal Theory, Intimate Encounters, Uncomfortable Conversations, along with Martha Feynman and Adam Romero. His most recent book is titled Law Without Future, Anti-Constitutional Politics and the American Right, published by Penn Press in 2019. Professor Jackson was a visiting scholar of the VHC in 2015. Thank you so much for being here today, Professor Jackson. What were you working on when you were a visiting scholar at the VHC? Well, at that time, I was working on um, thinking about the relationship between employer and employee and thinking about uh, how, in particular, how we tie healthcare in the United States to that relationship. And so uh, my work was trying to think what would be the implications if we move to a a Medicare for All uh, program. And I was at the time uh, uh, thinking about the Affordable Care Act, what we call Obamacare, um, as being perhaps a partial step towards Medicare for All and trying to pull out the things that I thought were positive about the Affordable Care Act that uh, would point the way towards Medicare for all. And so uh, very much engaging uh, the vulnerability project, and in particular, thinking about the relationship between law and political freedom in ways that uh, are not hitched primarily to um, identity, and also uh, thinking about the ways in which we need an active state to redistribute resources to facilitate political freedom. So not just simply turning to the law to protect, but actually turning to the state to intervene and redistribute. How did being at the VHC as a visiting scholar help you work through those things? Yeah, it was a, it was a real pleasure uh, having the time uh, to be at Emory a, a little bit longer. I've, I've been there a couple of times for conferences, which are always really wonderful conversations, but they always go too quick. You know, it's a weekend and then, and then you're back to real life. So actually having a little bit of time to, to really immerse myself in the conversations happening uh, at the law school at Emory was really productive. So I was able to deliver a public lecture and receive a lot of helpful feedback from that lecture during the question and answer period. See, I also joined a, a reading group uh, with, I believe it was Professor Feynman, Professor Denner, and, and a few others, I, maybe some law students too. So we were the reading group going on, and then there were also other uh, visiting fellows there. So it was uh, just the richness of an intellectual community and being able to be part of it and be part of a sustained conversation was it was incredibly helpful for for my project and for my thinking. You are also a co-editor of Feminist and Queer Legal Theory: Intimate Encounters, Uncomfortable Conversations. How did you get involved with that? Well, maybe I should take a step back. The project for me began really as a law student. I was a law student at Cornell when the Feminism and Legal Theory Project was based there. 
So I had um, was already a part of the conversations at FLT. And then when FLT moved to Emory, I remained part of the conversation. And I think that's a common occurrence for, for many who participate in FLT, that the conversations really continue for years. And I think it was around 2004 or five, Martha Feynman, Adam Romero, and I, uh, we were just talking about uh, new things emerging in legal theory and political life. And we decided it would be good to have a conference on the relationship between feminist legal theory and queer legal theory. So I forget the date, but somewhere around 2005 or six, we had a conference there at the Emory Law School, uh, a wonderful set of conversations. And coming out of that conference, we decided it would be a, a wonderful topic for an anthology. So we took uh, many of the presentations from that conference at Emory, supplemented it with other scholarly works. Uh, and so that's how the volume came into being. When you were a law student, what made you interested in the Feminism and Legal Theory Project? You know, anyone who's been through law school, you, you spend so much time learning doctrine. Uh, and uh, wonderful, you, you, need, you need to do that. But there are, I think, not enough spaces in American law schools to sort of take a step back from doctrinal developments and be able to think in a bit more of a critical manner and a bit more interdisciplinary manner uh, about what's transpiring uh, in U.S. law. So for me, the Feminism Legal Theory Project uh, was this wonderful space where you could engage in that kind of thinking that, um, again, at least when I was in law school, uh, ages and ages ago, that uh, was a bit rare. It sounds like you've continued to come to the feminism and legal theory workshops. What do you get from them now as a professor? Oh, they they remain incredibly helpful. You know, it's a it's a place. Uh, I think one of the great things about the feminism and legal theory project and now the vulnerability project is that both of them are committed to bringing together scholars from a variety of different disciplines and also from uh, different stages in one's academic career. And so that combination of getting to work with law students, graduate students, uh, senior scholars from law, anthropology, political theory, gender studies, um, that kind of space is just invaluable, I think, no matter what stage of your academic career you're in. Can you tell us a little about what you're doing now? Yeah, so um, I recently published a book called Law Without Future uh, that was exploring uh, the disintegration of commitments to constitutional democracy on the American right, and also thinking about the ways in which we diagnose that phenomena in ways that I think have been particularly problematic for understanding it and grappling with it in an appropriate manner. So that was one project that I recently finished, and I'm now turning to thinking about um, how debt and relationships between creditors and debtors structure a, a fair amount of, of law in the United States. So, you know, we may often think of creditors and debtors as being, well, that's something for bankruptcy law. But in many ways, that uh, relationship has also really been also at the heart, I think, in many ways of U.S. constitutional law. So I'm trying to think about the politics of debt. Uh, in relationship to U.S. constitutional law and history right now. Are you using a vulnerability analysis for that? Um, the, the Vulnerability Project and my time there at the Vulnerability Project is um, very much informing um, 
uh, my thinking on this. So to just maybe give you one example here, you, you know, one of the projects that I'm really interested in has been the campaign to abolish student debt uh, and the and the political theoretical work thinking about the implications of having an entire generation of students immersed in what we might call debt peonage today. So student debt is one of those things where it's not really recognizable or cognizable uh, immediately in terms of thinking about discrete and insular identities, to use language which will be familiar uh, to lawyers and law students in the United States. Formal legal equality doesn't really address uh, the student debt crisis. Yet nonetheless, what we learn if we uh, dig into the to, to who's actually impacted by student debt, we find that there's a disproportionate impact along lines of uh, race, gender, and class. So the Vulnerability Project, I think, and trying to think not necessarily against identity, but to think about law and freedom in a way that's not simply confined to identity uh, has been a, a really central uh, resource uh, for me and my thinking. And also in terms of thinking about our vulnerability and having different assets to navigate it. Right. So our vulnerability in this instance, in terms of educational resources, educational resources being an asset to weather uh, conditions of vulnerability, that, again, we have to have certain kinds of active state interventions and distributions in order to address it. And I think also an important part of the vulnerability project is pointing out the ways in which these structures and relations in contemporary politics simply look natural to us actually have histories. And it's important to note that the law has been active in producing uh, the student debt crisis. It's not simply a question of individuals making independent autonomous choices to go in, into debt. That Those um, choices have been very much structured by the law. So we have to uh, look at structure. Uh, we have to think beyond identity and we have to have a commitment to distributing resources in a society in which uh, we now confront inequality that's the worst since our, our gilded age. So uh, that constellation of concerns, I think I'm very much indebted to the Vulnerability Project. That's such a cool project. <laughs> Thank you. I, I taught my first class. I taught a class called Debt Law and Politics for the first time. Uh, I think it was maybe last spring. And all the students were, oh, this really speaks to my contemporary, this, this speaks to my existence in contemporary life. Uh, thank you. It's it's uh, it's relevant for an entire generation. I mean, it really is a generational uh, phenomenon. And again, I think it's been individualized in the American discourse. But these are individual problems. And so if I come back to the vulnerability project, I'm trying to break out of this notion uh, that uh, we're just simply independent, autonomous agents navigating a neutral market. Uh, it seems to me that ideology has been central uh, to getting us into the student debt crisis and confronting it and challenging it is going to be uh, absolutely essential to getting us out of that crisis, I think. Okay, well, that is a really cool application of vulnerability theory. Let's talk a little bit more about the book that you co-edited with Martha Feynman and Adam Romero. Can you tell me a little about the significance of the work? Like, what did it add to the legal field? What did it change? As I mentioned earlier in our conversation, the volume came out of a conference at Emory around 2005 or six, and the, the dates, I think, are important. Lawrence versus Texas had been decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. I, most of your listeners will probably know what that is, but for those who do not, Lawrence versus Texas overturned Bowers versus Hardwick, 
And Bowers versus Hardwick had said that it was constitutional to criminalize sodomy. So we're after Lawrence versus Texas, but we're still prior to uh, Obergefell versus Hodges, which made same-sex marriage uh, a constitutional right in the federal constitution. So we're in that period of time after Lawrence, and there's a lot of thinking about Lawrence versus Texas at that time. I think everyone agreed that Bowers versus Hardwick was wrongly decided, at least those of us engaged in the Feminism and Legal Theory Project thought Bowers was wrongly decided. But there were a variety of opinions as to what Lawrence versus Texas got right and got wrong uh, in overturning Bowers versus Hardwick. So you had uh, certain feminist critiques of Lawrence versus Texas that said it. uh, the Supreme Court had uh, yet again normalized privacy in a way that rendered uh, domestic violence against women invisible. You had queer theorists saying that what Lawrence versus Texas did was uh, reinscribe and reaffirm a norm monogamy. So you had feminist and queer theorists wrestling with Lawrence versus Texas. At the same time, you have emerging at that period certain conversations in legal theory, which began to put feminist and queer legal theory into an antagonistic relationship. So you had theorists such as Janet Halley at the time saying, in order to think about law, sexuality, and freedom, it might be really useful if we were to take a break from feminism. And then you had certain feminist theorists saying that queer theory was now being complicit with neoliberalism and uh, libertarian economics. And so there was a certain kind of emerging clash happening. Again, in the wake of Lawrence versus Texas, trying to think politically and legally in terms of, uh, well, what comes next uh, in terms of thinking about law, sexuality, and political freedom. So that was the context for for the volume. And I think the volume did, I think it contributed a a variety of things, but maybe two two things I, I really appreciate, especially in retrospect, about what the volume did. I think the volume does a great job of showing the diversity of views that constitute both feminist legal theory and queer legal theory. That is, those debates that were emerging between feminism on the one hand and queer theory on the other, I think relied on a notion that feminism and queer theory were in some ways homogenous and easily easily pigeonholed projects. And I think the volume really shows, again, the diversity of uh, thought and political projects within feminism and within queer legal theory. So I think that was something that the volume, a contribution that I I find quite valuable about the volume. Another uh, contribution that I think the volume made to thinking about law, again, I'll go back to that time of after Lawrence versus Texas, but before Obergefell versus Hodges. I think you had in the United States in that moment, a certain notion of progress hitched to the Supreme Court Uh, rendering decisions around the 14th Amendment, around equality and liberty, and in particular thinking that the primary task of of the political project of law, sexuality, and freedom was to ensure that a discrete and insular set of identities, often thought of as pre-political, so we'll just say uh, men, women, heterosexual, homosexual, that these identities were pre-political and that the primary task was to have formal legal equality and ensure that these discrete and insular identities could have access to institutions absent discrimination. 
And I think the volume uh, does a good job of disrupting that particular kind of political fantasy and the, the progress narrative that I think is constitutive of it. So I think the volume did this in at least two ways. I think it really troubled the notion of identity that's pre-political and also particularly binary when it comes to sexuality. I also think the volume did a good job of really bringing a critical lens to bear on the institutions uh, that uh, this project was in many ways normalizing through its appeals to formal legal equality. So institutions like the workplace, institutions uh, like marriage, those two primary institutions in particular. So the volume, I think, did a really nice job of disrupting a certain kind of liberal, a narrative of liberal progress around the law. And in many ways, I think that disruption finds its life continuing on in the Vulnerability Project as well. Have you found that that narrative has changed since the book was published at all? Um, you know, that's a great question. I'm not sure it has. I think leading up to Obergefell versus Hodges, I think the commitment to marriage as being a site of freedom and a central component of equality, I think that became actually more tight in some ways. So we dis volume disrupts it. But broadly speaking, I think there was a certain kind of recommitment to marriage again as an institution leading up to Obergefell versus Hodges. My sense is that since then, that has lessened a bit, the, the stranglehold of marriage over our political imagination. And uh, I think you can look at, for example, you know, I think the rise of, of a more radical uh, set of political movements, we'll say Occupy, Black Lives Matter, the rise of a, a, our, our democratic socialist congresswomen like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I do sense that something in political life has shifted a bit away from that progress of, or, or away from that narrative of liberal, liberal progress. But um, that's, that's a fantastic question. That, maybe that should be a, a, a subject of another conference at Emory. What's changed? What's changed in uh, queer legal theory and feminist legal theory since then? What would you like listeners to remember about our conversation today? It's been a, a really wonderful to be in conversation yet again. And I maybe I just would like to express my gratitude for the Feminism and Legal Theory Project and, and the Vulnerability Project for curating and nurturing these conversations across, across institutions and across time. I think it's, it's been invaluable. A set of interventions and, and conversations about uh, U.S. law. Maybe another thing that I, I hope listeners take away from this is, and maybe this might be especially aimed at law students, that we spend a lot of time as lawyers looking at what the law does, right? So th there's a rule and it does something out in the world. And I think that the Feminism and Legal Theory Project and the Vulnerability Project, and what they do is they allow us to have the space to not just engage what the law is doing, but I think what's also critically important is to have the space to conceptualize what it is that the law is presuming. So the law is often acting with a series of presumptions. And often as law students or lawyers, uh, we just have to assume the presumptions because maybe we have to represent a client or we need to, to win a case. 
And that's not the space perhaps where we can engage the presumptions as much. So the, the value, I think, again, of FLT and the Vulnerability Project is it really generates a set of conversations that lets us have that moment to think about what are the presumptions lurking in the law and what are the consequences of those presumptions? Things that um, maybe you don't get as much time to explore either as a law student or as a practicing attorney. Thank you again for being here, Professor Jackson. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. You can find both of Jack Jackson's books in the description of this episode on SoundCloud. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.